It feels like the world is ending. In the midst of apocalyptic times, it's tempting to cling on tightly to what we still have. But what if our desire to save the world is part of the problem? Theology for the end of the world suggests that in responding to the deeply entwined systems of capitalism, racism, and patriarchy, we should stop trying to unearth a good version of Christianity which stands opposed to these forms of violence, and seek instead to reckon with the role that Christianity has played in making the world we now inhabit. How has Christianity shaped the histories of marriage and the family? How did Christianity invent race and give birth to capitalism? Grappling with the ambivalent inheritance of Christianity, a tradition passed down by enslaved people and enslavers, by violent husbands, resourceful wives and courageous sex workers, by rich people and the dispossessed. A theology for the end of the world suggests Christians should give up on trying to redeem the world, a social order founded on violence and exploitation, and seek instead to end it. To end it, end it, end it, end it, end it, end it, end it. Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. Marika Rose is senior lecturer in philosophical theology at the University of Winchester. She's the author of A Theology of Failure, Zizek Against Christian Innocence, and more recently, Theology for the End of the World. Uh, I want to apologize because for some reason I referenced the book in the conversation as Theology at the End of the World. Uh, Everyone should go buy it. I'll link to where you can find it in the description and support Marika's work. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. Peace. Rose. I am a senior lecturer in philosophical theology at the University of Winchester. I kind of work, I guess, at the sort of intersection of continental philosophy of religion and Christian theology. Um, I guess I'm both interested in thinking about how Christianity has made the world that we live in um, and also what we can then kind of do with that inheritance. So a lot of my work is kind of broadly around those general themes My first book was kind of about Zizek and how Zizek can kind of give us ways of thinking, kind of giving a materialist account of Christian identity. So what what happens to the way we think about what it means to be a Christian if we take Christianity not to be some kind of ideal form, but kind of the sum total of all the things that people have actually said and done in the name of Christianity. And then this new book is more kind of thinking explicitly sort of how how do we think about the ways that Christianity has shaped uh, the world? uh, What do we do with it? Uh, what might it mean to kind of draw on resources from Christianity to kind of oppose the world, even as we recognize that Christianity is also kind of deeply built into the foundations of the world and in ways that are often kind of disavowed or or hidden. Yeah, that's great. So since we're going to primarily be talking about your newer book, I wanted to maybe just take a a moment at the beginning to talk about your first book, which I I think is really um, quite excellent. And one of the, the pieces of that that I found particularly interesting was that you 
I think, engage really constructively with Zizek, but in a way that avoids sort of hagiography. Uh, and so yeah. you really push him on those places where I think he very much needs to be pushed when it comes, you know, to issues, uh, you know, certain ways of, of which he frames uh, issues around sexuality and in particular around like the trans debate, um, his sort of blindness to questions of racism and things along those lines. So I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about the the way that you balance that that kind of complicated task of, of using people like Zizek and Lacan and this Lacanian um, psychoanalytic tradition, um, while also recognizing that there are some some pretty real limitations within that area. Yeah, I mean, I think in lots of ways, the question I kind of first came to Zizek with was about, you know, what, what does it mean to uh, be a Christian, to be shaped by Christianity, and to sort of recognize that whilst also recognizing that Christianity, you know, sometimes we want to think that where we came from is good, that the, the people or the kind of traditions that have formed us are good, um, and that therefore we are good. Um, and so kind of what does it what does it mean to to grapple with the ways that we've been formed by these ideas and these thinkers and these traditions without kind of wanting to idealize them? And I think in certain ways, that's in certain ways, for me, that's kind of the question that Zizek is asking in relation to kind of Marxism. So what does it mean to be a communist, given all of the historical failures of communism? Um, but I think it also works as a way of thinking about what it means to be a, a scholar of Zizek or Lacan. If I was starting out now, I don't know that I would want to start with Zizek, but Zizek is where I started. His ideas and his structures of thought are, I think, probably just forever a part of the way I think about the world now. And so, yeah, what does it, what does it mean to kind of recognize the ways that we're formed by these histories, these traditions? these uh, lines of, of thinking without uh, wanting to therefore kind of convince ourselves that they're somehow good or innocent because uh, we want to think that we also are, are good in it and are innocent. And that's interesting, right? Because in some ways, it sounds like you're using that that same strategy you're getting from him about how do you reflect critically upon your own foundations, right? To reflect critically on the yeah. way in which he is now formative or, or, or that school of thought is now formative in your own thought. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think also one of the things I would take from Zizek is that that model for thinking about how to how to reckon with Christianity and, and the way that it has made the world that we live in. Um, yeah, and I think that in some ways, maybe the kind of the central theoretical tasks we set ourselves, we always inevitably fail at. Um, but I think some of the ways that, that Zizek kind of fails is the ways that he fails to kind of really face up to some of the problems with the, the ideas and the traditions that he inherits. Yeah, and there's a lot of success in the particular stripe of of failure that Zizek sort of inaugurates through his work, right? So I, I'm with you in the sense that it's far better, I think, to start off with Zizek than to land on Zizek for whatever that's worth. <laughs> and so we brought you here to talk about your new book. And I want to say at the start that um, I actually really appreciate the way that you just summarized your two books because... I see the linkage there in a way that I, I I didn't initially kind of grasp, and I think is really helpful. The way that your first book sort of sets out this paradigm for thinking critically about foundations and and how that can be done constructively, uh, and then this new book in many ways is kind of retelling the story of how Christianity came to build the world that we find ourselves in in its ongoing catastrophes. Yeah, and. I mean, I think one of the things that I've tried to do in the new book a little bit is to deliberately resist the temptation to kind of collapse everything into one big story. So I hope the book kind of hangs together in a way that makes sense. But I think there's a kind of deliberateness in in not wanting to kind of tie everything into a single narrative, that, that there are lots of different ways we can grapple with this question of how Christianity has made the world. And um, there are lots of different lines of, of kind of uh, inheritance you can trace 
I don't think there's one correct one. I think there are some that make more sense or are more helpful for thinking about the world. Um, but yeah, I think in some ways each chapter is a different kind of experiment with kind of how do we think about this? How do we grapple with this kind of complex inheritance that we arrive at? Yeah. So I guess we should say the the book is called Theology at the End of the World, which of course has this, you know, pretty overt apocalyptic ring to it. I noticed in the introduction, you somewhere in there you cite Tommy Lynch, who uh, in his apocalyptic uh, political theology book, he writes about the world, capital W, right? And it's in its deep structure as being constituted by, uh, there's four things, I don't race, gender, capital. Nature. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. And I I sort of took that as a, a similar starting point for your own project. But just to set us up here, can you say more about that idea of the world and what a theology at the end of the world is, uh, you know, trying to get done? Yeah. So, you know, we it, it feels in lots of different ways like the world is ending, right? We Everything feels kind of apocalyptic. You see the kind of increasingly obvious impacts of climate change. It feels like... Yeah, it feels like in lots of ways, I think that we're in a kind of state of decline and that things are starting to fall apart. And I think that there's a real temptation in that context to kind of hark back to an earlier stage of uh, when things were better, when things were a little bit less obviously kind of collapsing, uh, to sort of cling on to to what we still have to sort of double down and try and kind of protect what's ours and and what kind of remnants of safety we, we still feel like we have. And I feel like a lot of the Christian tradition has kind of tended in that direction. And I spend a lot of time in the talking about Augustine who I think is a really interesting figure both because he's so so formative so for so much of the Christian theological tradition but also because in certain ways Augustine is is kind of writing in a context that feels like it resonates with our own context you know sort of as the Roman Empire is starting to crumble kind of armies at the gates um this kind of anxiety about things falling apart um you know Augustine's solution to that really is to say that um Christianity needs to take sides with empire to um see itself as what what kind of Schmidt Carl Schmidt talks about picking up on um uh, one of the Pauline letters uh, the catacomb holding off the end of the world so the the role of the state backed by the church is to kind of hold on to some kind of semblance of order in the midst of all these fears of kind of things descending into chaos and violence and I think that a lot of what's most deeply violent about the Christian tradition kind of comes from that impulse um, to, to, to kind of hold on to some remnants of order rather than actually saying maybe maybe the end of a, a world that's built on kind of violence for Augustine particularly kind of built on slavery and again I think that's something that really resonates with the, the world that we currently inhabit um, to the, this kind of violence the uh, relationships between people of domination and mastery and rather than kind of doubling down on those out of fear of what will happen if they fall apart actually to say what would it look like to say we don't want this world to continue, this world that relies on domination, this world that re- relies on um, slavery, this world that kind of deeply relies on violence, and actually to say, maybe we could hope for something different, or maybe just the, the end of, of this, and maybe we don't even need to know what comes next, we just need to be able to recognise the kind of deep violence that, that structures the world around us, and to, to refuse that. So I, I find this really a, a very compelling vision, and 
particularly you have this this framing of two different approaches, right? There's this kind of attempt to sustain the world and this attempt to embrace uh, the world. There's an againstness to the world. Um, but one of the things that I was thinking a little bit about while I was reading particularly your introduction was um, Tad DeLay's book, uh, Against What Does the White Evangelical Want? Where he really, you know, he uses this against structure. So he has, you know, his chapter names are all against sexuality and against, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about maybe help draw a distinction between two different ways of being against the world, right? Because I'm I'm thinking back to my own childhood, right? Growing up in the evangelical church, uh, all I was ever told was to be against the world, that the world is evil and the world is dark and all these things. And yet that kind of against the world, I think, is a very different posture towards the world. Uh, in fact, I think you'd ultimately probably... I, I think you're ultimately right that there's there's really more something about sustaining structures of power in that. Um, but I wonder if you could talk about what differentiates these two different postures of againstness. I think the, the the key difference I would say is that the way that evangelicals tend to see themselves as being against the world is to understand themselves as not being part of the world. So we oppose this thing that we stand outside of um, that we experience as kind of coming to us from the outside. And I think one of the things I want to do in the book is say, no, like this world, even where it sort of purports to be secular is a world that Christianity has made. Um, we need to recognize the ways that we are part of this world that we oppose. So it's not like we're standing in some kind of place of goodness or innocence. Like it's uh, in, in opposing the world, we're opposing the kind of the systems and structures that have formed us that give us our sense of who we are. So there's a much more kind of complex entanglement between who we are and, and, and the world that we are um, opposing. Um, and I think also one of the things that evangelicalism often does is it, it has this kind of narrative of fall or decline you know once once we were a Christian society once we really knew who men and women were and respected marriage and people worked with dignity and all of these kinds of things and so the againstness is this desire to kind of go back to something that was better in the past um reliant on a kind of fantasy of the this time when things were good um yeah think, when when kids knew the value of hard labor in meatpacking plants yeah exactly um and yeah, so to say uh, what it means to be against is not to is not to regain this thing that we once had. It's actually to kind of step out into into the unknown, into sort of uncharted uh, territory, into to not know what it is that we are opposing in some ways to the world and to not know what will happen once we start to kind of undo these things, because in undoing the systems and structures of the world, we're also undoing ourselves. The point about sort of in the background of that, you're, I think you mentioned Schmidt earlier about how the violence of the state, you know, gets sanctioned because the role of the state is to hold back primordial chaos or lawlessness or something like this, I think is maybe to what Justin was trying to get at, I'm not sure, is it's one where I think liberals or conservatives uh, in, in an American sort of framing, um, everyone can agree. That yes, we want to use the state, the power of the state to enforce, you know, our vision of the good, whatever that may be. And I think one of the things that I got from your your writing here is like, you know, when you take a step back from that, it, it does very much seem like a trap, the the trap of violence. On the other hand, I'm not naive enough to come out as a as a radical pacifist. I, I might have at one point. I think there are times when, unfortunately, violence is necessary. So there's this very deep tension, I guess, there that's, uh, I, I don't know that it's resolvable at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, I think the person I found most helpful for thinking about this is Walter Benjamin, actually, who's very much kind of in conversation with Schmidt. And 
you know, for Benjamin, he the world is brought into being by violence. Uh, the the violence of the state is a kind of world sustaining violence, um, and he really, in certain ways, wants the goal to be a kind of uh, the end of that violence. But he doesn't think that we necessarily get there by peace. That uh, you have to destroy the world if you want to kind of end those structures of violence. In some ways, that what he's interested in is not the question of violence or non-violence, but the question of like what is the relationship between violence and the systems and structures of the world? Do we do we use violence to kind of prop up the world, or or do we use violence in ways that actually kind of undermine um, and disrupt the world? One of the things that that he thinks about it as part of that is uh, the ways that certain kinds of narratives of sort of progress or development function as, as a kind of theodicy, as a justification of violence. So, you know, we we make these sacrifices, we do these things and we do it in the name of this future when things will be better um, and ultimately history will redeem us. And, and then, you know, this violence will be justified. And, and one of the reasons he pushes back on that is he says there's really no limit to the violence that you can do in the name of some kind of nonviolent future. And so for him the task is not to figure out non-violent ways to resist the world but actually how to face up to violence and to justify it not in the name of what we think it will achieve which is actually something that's beyond our control but actually kind of in itself so not in the name of you know we do this and therefore this thing will happen and then that will justify the the violence that we've used but actually to say the 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 thing to do in this moment is to resist in this way, to push back in this way, um, and to kind of try and, and think about the moment and the act in themselves, and not just as kind of means to some end that we hope in or believe in. I've been thinking about that a little bit in in relation to this kind of idea of abolition. One of the things I say in the book is that I'm trying to articulate something like a kind of abolitionist theology, but not just um, invested in the abolition of policing in pr- prisons, but of all of the kind of systems and structures that are maintained and preserved by those institutions. Um, you know, you can try and push back on policing, you can try and push back on prisons in the name of some very clear vision of what you think should happen instead. Um, or you can just say, no, we don't know where we're going and we don't know what's going to come next. We haven't figured out all of these things in advance. But what we know is that there is no way we can justify the violence that is done by the state through these institutions. And so we resist them not because we think we've we've figured out what's going to what's going to happen next, how we're going to solve all these problems, but just because there's no way that we could justify continuing these forms of violence. So and so I think it's it's partly that shift away from the kind of just justification in the name of what we know is going to come next uh the attempt to kind of justify suffering and an attempt to really face up to it um if you're going to do violence um you need to really kind of be able to face up to what it is that you're doing um, and not kind of cover it over because it's, it's going to be justified by this thing that's coming down the road something like that and the sort of um indescribability i think is something that's really interesting and that really runs through some of the millenarian, I guess that would be the word, um, uh, thinkers that you you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, people like Joachim de Fiore. And it, what this conversation bring to mind, I think it was two months ago, I did a presentation on um, Thomas Munzer and talking about, you know, this whole uprising. And I happened to be paired by the conference organizers with somebody who was doing a paper on St. Francis. And I actually thought these were great. I was like, yeah, absolutely. I think this is a, you know, this is a, a wonderful match. And we both gave our papers. And what was interesting was the dynamic that emerged during the Q&A, which was a dynamic where the person that I was like co-panelist with uh, was really invested in trying to drive a pretty hard line between Francis and Munzer. Uh, and I spent most of the Q&A really trying to argue that these are buddies. Uh, we should be holding these two uh, together. Um, and it really came down, I think, to 
different conceptions about where these lines of allegiance are drawn in different ways. And I think for the the people that I, you know, or at least the the speaker that was there with me, um, there was a sense in which the violence of Munzer and the sort of pacifism, or at least the sensible pacifism of of St. Francis makes them fundamentally irreconcilable. Um, but I think what you're pointing to, right, is, is I think different ways of conceptualizing these different modes of allegiance where there is, I think, an important way in which they are both people who are trying to to break out of the the structures and the hierarchy that dominate the world of their times. They're both open to a future that, you know, the more you look at, you know, even somebody like Joachim de Fiori, you know, he's going to write about the age of the spirit, but it's all pretty indeterminate, right? He's he doesn't have this concrete notion of of where you're going, but it's it's instead it's a it's a posture of openness to the possibility of radical change that I think, you know, both of those figures really embodied in that that I, I at least saw some of my task, and I think some of the ongoing task for theologians in this area is looking at how do we we create these sort of strange alliances between the Munsers with their uh, you know eight canons and uh, the Saint Francis's preaching at birds. <laughs> yeah, and I mean you know it, it feels to me very much that if we look at what is happening in the world around us at the moment, it doesn't seem like anyone has figured out how to actually effectively disrupt. The things that are happening um you know I, I see lots of people getting mad on the internet about various kinds of uh, protest tactics or direct action tactics and it feels to me like the thing that people very rarely say is we clearly haven't figured out what works right climate change is happening we have not figured out a way to stop it um the prison industrial complex is expanding like in lots of ways all of these things are getting worse and people are trying various different things and none of them seem to be super successful so um it, it seems to me like you know if you're if you're doing something because you think it's the correct way to win uh i mean good luck to you but it doesn't it doesn't seem to me like there's an obvious candidate for kind of the correct tactic in this situation and so i think the question has to be more um what does it mean to to figure out some kind of reorientation of our life around this kind of desire to end the world um, in the particular context that we find ourselves in, within the particular constraints that we find ourselves in. You know, if we were like successfully building to some kind of revolutionary overthrow of all things, then things might be different, but it doesn't feel to me like that's where we're at at the moment. Yeah, yeah. In fact, you have uh, one of the chapters in here is called The World Doesn't Need Saving But Destroying, which I think kind of gets directly at what we're talking about. And you write about how Christianity is for, for many of us, the name of our entanglement with sin, immediately followed by this question, you know, well, what can we do? Which is, you know, seemingly the right question to ask afterwards. And then you, um, the section of that heading is we can't do anything. And I was reminded of, um, uh, we're reading Clayton Crockett's uh, Energy and Change book right now, who in the, in the introduction, he kind of adopts a similar posture. Uh, in some ways, he says, what do we do? We can't do anything. Can you say more about that? Is there a value in, as is Gisekian, <laughs> to some extent, is there a value in doing nothing? I mean, there are lots of different ways to do nothing, right? I think for me, the, for me, part of the problem is the, the way that the dominant narrative of Christianity invests us in this kind of narrative of salvation and redemption and makes us think that we can be the agents of that salvation and redemption and that that the idea is so bound up with the ways that we've come to think of what it means to be a person in within racial capitalism right so bound up with ideas about sovereignty and control and power and self-possession and I think that's 
if we recognize the ways that these ideas of property um, and freedom are kind of really tangled up with the, the very problem that we're trying to solve, then we have to try and get out of this kind of narrative of, you know, that that sees us as able to kind of be in control of what happens to us and around us, um, of being able to kind of control what happens in the world um, and to grapple with all of the ways in which being a person is about being thrown into situations that we don't understand or control about wanting things that we haven't necessarily chosen um, and trying to kind of grapple with that. Yeah, I think for me, psychoanalysis is really helpful, partly because it gives us ways of thinking ourselves not as sovereign, not in control of ourselves, of recognizing the ways that so much of who we are is stuff that is beyond our control that we don't even understand, let alone can kind of be in control of. And so trying to figure out how to how to be a person in a way that isn't invested in this model of the kind of self-possessed person who knows themselves, who's in control of themselves, who can determine what happens around them. And I think for me, the more productive question than kind of how can we fix this? What can we do is the question of what we want. Um, because I think for me, the question of desire really brings together something like the, the the combination of dispossession and responsibility, right? So who we are, what we want is just all of this like random stuff that has happened to us that has made us who we are, the places we were born, the people we were born to, the people we grew up around, the stuff that stuck with us for some reason. So we find ourselves being these people that we haven't necessarily chosen. And yet, then I think the task is to kind of take responsibility for that, to try and figure out what it means to kind of answer this question, what do we want? And to kind of go from there. Yeah. And I think this question of desire, because it's precisely because it's something that we don't control, we can't possess. It's something that kind of moves through us and gives us a kind of more useful way of of thinking about how to be in the world and how to try and orient ourselves towards the world. It's interesting how what's old becomes new, because I agree with you. The question of desire is super important and probably one of the most difficult questions anyone can ask of themselves, I think. Um, At least it has been for me. But you know, in different traditions, whether it be in the sort of Western esoteric tradition or in Christianity, you get different versions of this. Like, uh, how am I aligning myself with either the will of God or how do I know my true will, right? And fine, you know, we can leave that that as an open question, but the mode of questioning, I think, is something that we inherit. Um, You know, once you give up on the game of whose version of Christianity is right, I think there's a justifiable impulse to just jettison the whole fucking thing. Where where do you think that leaves someone in relation to the tradition? I'm thinking of like how a lot of what goes as post-Christian thought remains very preoccupied with, you know, Christian imagery and and logic and tropes and so on. Um, And if, if the goal is to like unsettle or unseat this deep structure of the world that is Christian, how can this be done using the master's tools? I just have my doubts. I think that part of it, like one of one of the problems with the the kind of supersessionist structure of Christianity and the kind of the, the structure of philosophy that it kind of picks up from that is that it tends to tends to suggest that there is a like a correct way out of things, right? Like there are these particular contradictions in this particular moment, and the way to resolve these contradictions is in this direction. You know, I think for me the 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 way to deal with all of the ways that Christianity has formed me is to spend a bunch of time trying to recognize the ways that Christianity has formed me and to kind of grapple with that and through kind of studying theology and and thinking about it in relation to kind of political philosophy and all of these kinds of things. But I certainly wouldn't kind of say that that has to be anyone else's way out. Yeah, I mean, I think in in some ways for me, it is this question of like, what do you want? What, What actually feels to you like it's 
the way to to figure out this question of like who you are and what you want and where that came from um we we all deal with these things in different ways right and i think one of the things that's interesting about christianity is even as i think there are certain kind of really forms that really dominate the ways that each of us individually is formed by Christianity is kind of particular and specific. Uh, uh, and so I don't think there's like a, a correct route out of things or a co- correct way to relate to these things. And I think one of the things, again, I kind of take from, from Jesus' Lacanianism is that in lots of ways, the, the the really important thing is not so much like what you're doing is the, the way that you're relating to that, right? So, um, you know, I think about this a lot in relation to the university, like the university as a system and a structure is fucked. Um, you can, you could, you could leave it and you could leave the university in various ways. You could leave it because you think that by leaving it, you will make yourself innocent of the violence that the university depends on. Um, or you could leave it because you just think um, my relationship to the university is dysfunctional and it's destroying me and I'm it's investing me in all these ideas about myself that are actually not helping me or, or changing things. Um, the model I find helpful is actually what is your relation to these things? Um, are you trying to find someone else to solve your problems? Are you trying to uh, make yourself feel better by being the person who's pointing out the problems um, in ways that actually kind of get you off the hook for grappling with um, the way that you, this is also your shit? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think what I'm doing in the book is is charting some of the trajectory that I have taken as I've worked through the ways that Christianity has shaped me and fucked me up. Um, and I'm hoping that it will be helpful to other people, but I certainly don't think that that's the the way that anyone else needs to go. Um, so I don't think it's it's not it's not that we all are on our own kind of private journeys and have nothing to say to each other and help each other. But I also don't think that there's a correct way out of this or a correct way to do things. And for me, the question is, is about like, how do we relate to this? How do we both try honestly to face up to this question of like who we are and how we're shaped by the world and how we're shaped by precisely the systems and structures that we want to oppose and we want to undo and then kind of seeing where that takes us and um, without really any kind of guarantee in advance of where that's going to be or what that's going to look like. Yeah, I suppose the desire to move beyond Christianity is in itself a, a very Christian <laughs> move. Uh, in a more Harrowian mode, the question's better, like, you know, how do we stay with the tradition? And you write somewhere in there, like, you know, what what can we do with this thing that we've inherited? And I, I like that question. If I could just piggyback yeah. off of that a little bit. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of a lot of people I know who leave often kind of conservative Christian religiosity, you know, the sort of ex-evangelical sorts of folks, right? The initial move is, you know, if it's not into something like Catholicism or or yeah. orthodoxy, um, maybe in the same way, will often be towards something like Buddhism or, you know, uh, particularly like Zen or something along those lines. And I think that can just be like a genuine, you know, I find this a more compelling vision of the world. And, and I think that's great. But I think there is sometimes there's a version of that, which is this idea of constructing the pure other, that there is something corrupt in where I am, but there is purity. And I can find that purity, whether it's in the East or whether it's in indigenous traditions. And often there's kind of a colonializing uh, way in which these things are handled. And there's this idea of I'm going to find the purity of the other uh, and that will rescue me and and part of what I, th- I find interesting about your approach is uh you talk about the the sort of ready to handness of Christianity for you and I feel very much the same way is that I think there's an interesting alternative which is rather than finding the other who's pure digging into the otherness of the tradition itself and digging into its own internal impurities as uh, providing some sort of resource there yeah and I guess 
I definitely think that there there are lots of versions of kind of leaving behind Christianity or leaving behind one version of Christianity that that kind of do fall into this like desire for innocence, this desire for goodness, this desire to escape things in a way that I don't think you actually can escape things. But I also think that there are probably a lot of really pathological ways of continuing to continuing to engage with theology, continuing to engage with the church. Um, and so I think I'm more reluctant than I might once have been to say, you know, oh, you shouldn't leave, you know, you have to kind of stay in or stay in some sense or continue to figure this out. I just think that that can also be a form of pathology. And again, I think it really is this question of like, actually what's going on in your relationship to this? Like, is this the task of like figuring out who you are and what you want and how to kind of undo your formation by these systems and structures of violence? Or are there ways that actually you're doing this stuff that that are about trying to hold on to some other thing that actually is part of the problem? So yeah, I, I guess I just don't think there's there's one correct way to deal with tradition, right? Um yeah, I think I think that's that's absolutely right. So yeah, picking up on the the, the point about how you're relating uh to it. I posted that we were going to be talking to you a few hours ago and my buddy Matt. Uh, Matt Valor asked, I have the impression that you're still very committed to a broadly and specifically quite British version of an evangelical tradition, albeit one that is thoroughly reimagined. Almost saying, quote, if we really took the evangelical tradition seriously, we would reach these radical conclusions, end quote. Firstly, is that correct? And secondly, if it is, do you have any thoughts on the well-rehearsed idea that people only really imagine evangelicalism as part of processing their exit from it? I mean, I think the thing that's interesting about evangelicalism as a tradition, um, certainly more so than a lot of other Christian traditions, is the way that it thinks about itself as something that you choose uh, and something that you kind of opt into. Yeah, um, the... Jewish historian Daniel Boyarin suggests that one of the things that happens as Christianity kind of first comes into being as a distinct thing is that um, as Christianity comes into being, it invents the notion of religion as something that can be distinguished from all of the other things that make up the, the world that you inhabit. So, you know, before Christianity, religion is indistinguishable from the place that you were born, the people you were born to, um, the foods that you ate, the clothes that you wore, the ways that you mark the seasons, all of these things. And that, that kind of Christianity comes up with this new version of what religion is as something that you can kind of opt into and convert into that kind of cuts you off from these kinds of traditions and these inheritances. Um, and I think that evangelicalism really believes that about itself, that it is something that you kind of choose. And I think I would see myself as an evangelical, not in the sense that evangelicalism is something that I have chosen or uh, would in any way continue to choose, but it, in the sense it is a, the tradition that's most deeply formed me. It's, it's kind of a part of who I am in the same kind of way that um, my parents are part of who I am. I think in some ways, one of the shifts for me between the first book and the second book is, is actually the first book. I think my model is, is this very evangelical model of Christianity is like someone that you fall in love with. So to, to be a good Christian is to kind of love the church in the way that you might love a partner and you face up to all of the kind of good things and bad things about them. Um, but that there is this kind of commitment to that person. And I think where I'm at now, I would more think of, of it as being like evangelicalism being like my parents, like they're part of who I am. I have some kind of confusing sense of myself being the product of them, some kind of sense of this still being a part of of owing something to something maybe in some way that I have really complicated feelings about but that ultimately like it isn't something that I've I chose really um or it 
certainly no more than any other thing. I, I, you know, all of the things we choose, you're like, did you really choose this? Is it just the product of your environment and your upbringing and all these kinds of things? So there's much more kind of complex entanglement of things. And I think in some ways what I've been trying to do um, and that I don't know is really possible is to sort of think, well, is it possible to, to sort of think about Christianity in a way that, that kind of moves away from this notion of religion that Boyarin talks about that doesn't see it as something that you kind of opt into or that you choose or that you convert into, but that just something is kind of part of who you are for better or for worse. And then you have to kind of deal with that um so yeah I I guess that's how I would currently think about my relationship to evangelicalism Christianity as, as your mom's Manchester accent as you as <laughs> yeah. from the conclusion <laughs> yeah you know I probably would not voluntarily read a book by C.S. Lewis anymore um I certainly <laughs> wouldn't encourage anyone else to go read a book by C.S. Lewis and yet there are these kind of bits that I read in that book that are kind of forever embedded in my mind and probably mm. shape me thinking ways I'm not even aware of I wonder if, if um, we could turn maybe to the political question, right? So we've been talking a lot about the ways that we um, reflect on and live in tension with traditions we've inherited or things like that um, uh, and and what that might look like. Um, but there's also, you know, a pretty distinctly political edge to this work as well. Um, and I was thinking about this, you know, a couple questions back, uh, Matt, I think you asked a question about, about the doing nothing. Um, and, and there's the, the political version of doing nothing that, that we talked a little bit about, but one of the other metaphors that you use in, I believe it was in the conclusion, uh, is you talk about basically a theological general strike and using the, the general strike as a, as a model for the, the sort of abolitionist theology that you're advocating here. Um, and I wonder if, if maybe we could use the invocation of the general strike, uh, to sort of pull towards the more political end. What do you see as the politics that emerges out of this, uh, apocalyptic, rejection of the world that is is put forward in this book in this reconstruction of Christianity's effect on the world how do we politicize that or or should we politicize that or yeah <laughs> I mean I think it's pretty straightforwardly politicized in some ways in the book I don't spend a lot of time kind of going into details of political commitments but um I think for me to want the end of the world is to want the end of capitalism um is to want the end of uh anti-blackness and the racial order that is built on that and also to see those as connected to want the the abolition of kind of patriarchy to want the abolition of the state um and kind of state violence yeah i think a kind of um yeah in lots of ways kind of abolitionism but as a kind of generalized principles starting to say you know i think once you start to say that, that the violence of the state is most clear in kind of the policing prisons and the army and once you want the abolition of that that leads you to lots of other kinds of abolition because you start to recognize the the, the structures of the world so um abolishing borders abolishing the state uh, abolishing capital abolishing private property those kinds of broad principles and obviously what that looks like practically is a whole other set of kind of complicated questions that the book is not really trying to get into but i think that's the kind of general orientation that for me kind of follows from uh, yeah and and, 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 and with 
with no intention of like trying to pin you down on anything, right? I'm, I'm particularly intrigued. You use this language of the abolition of the state a few times. Do you see not just a sort of vaguely left consequence of this kind of thinking, but do you see something more specifically anarchistic coming out of your thought um, that you see as, as kind of a necessary takeaway of the kind of work that you're proposing or, you know, anarchistic or libertarian communism, whatever uh, sort of language you might want to use? Yeah, I think, I mean, that definitely is the political tradition that I feel most resonates with the kinds of arguments that I'm making. I think kind of actually existing anarchist thought sometimes remains invested in certain ideas. Uh, I think that a lot of the kind of classical anarchist tradition, I think there's still a real investment in a certain notion of kind of self-sovereignty that I think is partly the consequence of not having kind of fully worked through this question of what does it mean to abolish property? What does it mean to abolish state power? But yeah, I like... uh, Jared Sexton's formulation, he says that it's not everything for everyone, but nothing for no one. Uh, The landless inhabitation of selfless existence. So how do we undo not just uh, private property as a kind of external institution, but also as a kind of model and a framework for thinking about how we relate to ourselves? Yeah, that's great. Thanks. I'm actually glad that we've ended up in this place where we're talking about anarchism. And I know that you're someone who's conversant with radical theology, and I know there's different varieties of that. But I think that in certain versions, the political or ontological upshot of those things has been anarchism. Can you talk about the way that, or if that has been an influence uh, to what extent on your own thinking in in this work as well? Are you asking about anarchist thought or about radical theology? I guess I'm asking about the way that you view the possible confluence of those things and how that's maybe uh, influenced your own thinking. If not at all, you can be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, it's interesting. I think in lots of ways, I think this is uh, the product of kind of a mixture of uh, the training that I happen to have and the things I've happened to end up teaching. But I think in lots of ways, a lot of my thinking is is more the product of uh, uh, feeling like there are things that are problems in the, the kind of mainstream of the theological tradition more than the kind of engaging with the, the kind of radical tendencies. But I mean, I do think there's a one of the, the ways that evangelicalism has formed me is in the sense of uh, the, the ways that the church has kind of become this kind of institution, has mm. produced certain kinds of corruption and certain kinds of investment and particular kinds of violence and a kind of opposition to that. Yeah. There's a, this Thomas Munzer, uh, the slogan of everything for everyone kind of goes back to, to the book of Acts. And I think there are tendencies throughout the Christian tradition that never really dominate. So I wouldn't kind of want to make any claim that they're like the true the true core of Christian tradition or something. But I do think there is this potential for a kind of radical refusal of systems and structures of power. Um, yeah. And I mean, in some ways, I think for me, the, the, the most important theological influences, I was thinking this as I was kind of wrapping up the book, are, are the kind of Jewish readings of the Christian tradition that we find in people like like Benjamin and like Taubes, um, who are kind of arguing that what we find in Christianity is this kind of apocalyptic tendency alongside alongside a bunch of other tendencies. Yeah, again, not to claim that that's the kind of real nature of Christianity, but that there is a that possibility recurs in Christianity. I don't know that I feel like I've answered this question, but a question I have is, um, is it possible to kind of lean into those aspects of the Christian tradition without inevitably getting tangled up with, with all the other ones? Can you kind of lean into this desire for the end of the world without uh, falling into the desire to impose another kind of order or another kind of sovereignty? Um, yeah, no, I appreciate that. I mean, I think it's interesting how there's different trajectories to end up in a similar sort of political terrain using the same tradition, but from very different uh, starting points, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm thinking here about one of the big threats that I think is going to become, you know, th- that is very real right now, but that's going to become an increasing problem in our world is something like ecofascism is something that your work was bringing to mind a lot because there is a sense in which there is something like an apocalypticism often within ecofascism. And uh, honestly, there's an apocalypticism within a lot of fascist literature. I just read um, Behold the Pale Horse by Cooper, which is like one of the foundational conspiratorial texts um, that, you know, went on to create the Alex Joneses of the world and all this, right? And it's deeply, deeply apocalyptic. And yet it's this sort of reactionary apocalypticism. And that sort of approach seems like it's it's bubbling up as the climate crisis is intensifying. The reality of ecofascism is becoming more and more pressing um, at this point. Yeah, and I mean, I think... I think what's interesting about a lot of versions of apocalypticism is this desire for the way that the desire for the end of the world is often really tangled up with precisely the ideas that I think are part of what we should be looking to to want to end, right? You know, this this, this fantasy that you get in kind of apocalyptic literature of, you know, securing a small space against the violent hordes attacking it. Um, I've been thinking a lot about how you just, you know, the the, the trope of the zombie and all of these kind of computer games and things that are all sort of organised around this idea of like securing your property against the world um, of kind of doubling down on violence, of doubling down. You get this a lot in kind of end of the world films, like all of humanity is kind of becomes this threat and what remains is the nuclear family. And so I think in some ways the problem with those apocalyptic visions is that they're not apocalyptic enough. They want the world to end in a way that leaves the kind of real core structures of it intact. Right. Um, so uh, this is a very, I'm conscious this is a very Shizekian argument. They're not- Not, not violent enough, enough. yeah. Yeah, like what does it what does it mean to end the world so radically that we no longer invested in this idea that we can secure uh, a space and mark it out as our own and protect ourselves from the risk posed to us by other people? What does it mean actually to kind of let go um, of this idea of ourselves as kind of property that can be defended of of, of a space that we can kind of wall off from other people um, and actually to recognise our like absolute dependence on and vulnerability to other people and to kind of figure out how to live from there. I'm an aficionado of of like disaster movies. Like I love these things. They're so much fun. And the the worse they are, the better they are. And I think a really yeah. good example of this is the movie 2012, where you have this kind of like world destroying cataclysm and volcanoes are going off and there are twisters ripping apart Los Angeles and all of this. Continents are shifting. Yeah. Um, and yet the movie ends with one, all of the rich people survived on their big giant arc yacht things or whatever they yeah. are. Um, and the other thing is, is it ends by taking this broken nuclear family and they are reunited, which, you know, is often the end, you know, that's the end of Independence Day. That's the end of a lot of these movies. But I think it's it's particularly ultimately comical in 2012 because the whole movie sets up that the, you know, the, the quote unquote new dad, the stepdad or whatever, he's just the nicest guy in that entire movie. He's just, yeah. he's good with the kids he's good with everything and they're like but we got to get rid of them so they just chomp him up inside these gears <laughs> in like the most brutal scene ever because they have to get rid of him to get him out of the way so that they can end with a shot of the husband and wife holding hands while they're like picking up the kids yeah yeah and i mean i think that one of the things that is interesting is 
both in kind of mass culture and also in certain forms of kind of left culture, there is this this idea of this turn to care within the private sphere as the kind of solution to the violence. You know, like we double down on gender norms in the home to hold off this kind of chaos that is happening. The, the kind of valorization of care amongst certain aspects of the contemporary left, I think, is often really bad at grappling with the way that, that care is also the way that the world is reproduced and the way that violence is reproduced. Um, I think many of us who've grown up in evangelicalism have seen the really deep entanglement of care for others and violence towards others um, and I think again like partly what the problem is for me is not actually sufficiently kind of thinking through the question of like well what are these systems and structures that hold the world in place um, and what would it mean to try and think about the way we relate to one another that recognizes that our sense of what it means to care is really tangled up with these forms of violence that we've got to kill the kill the stepdad in order to restore the family uh, we've got to keep certain people out of our spaces in order that we can feel safe um, what would it mean to actually kind of work through that one of the ways that you seem to tackle this confluence of of care and violence is talking about what you call the rescue industry or the white savior industrial complex, like, right? All of these these narratives that build up around rescuing, you know, victims of trafficking or, or you know, quote unquote victims of sex work, these sorts of things. Um, and so I was really interested reading this with what's happening right now. And I wondered if you had any thoughts about um the sound of freedom, that recent movie that's come out about trafficking, if you're familiar at all with this astroturfed sort of Q adjacent, like QAnon adjacent reactionary movie, Sound of Freedom, which is sort of loosely based on a guy who who you know supposedly saves trafficked people, but there's lots of questions about the violence of the work that he's done in the past and the misrepresentations of that work. I just was curious if you had any any thoughts of Sound of Freedom and, well, and all of that. That's Justin, amazing. have you have you seen that movie? I've I've not seen the movie yet. I've, no. I've not seen it either. I I thought it maybe it had like an adrenochrome sort of valence to it, but I I'm, I could be wrong. I I've know. I've heard that the adrenochrome did not make the cut. It's it's oh, that's too bad. It was filmed, but it didn't make the final cut. <laughs> All right, sorry. Go ahead. I mean, I, just, I think a lot of the time these kinds of moral panics around the threats to women index a reluctance on our own part to grapple with the violence that is much closer to home, right? Um, and, and also the ways that our lives are kind of built on violence. So it's much easier to worry about foreign women being trafficked by total strangers than it is to recognise that most violence happens within the context of the home and the family. Uh, it's much easier to to say, well, you know, if we have better better controls at the borders, we'll stop people being trafficked, than it is to recognise that actually the existence of borders as such is precisely what endangers people and pushes them into the hand of people smugglers. It's much easier to see the threat as existing outside of the places that belong to us that feel safe. And also these things then feed into this kind of doubling down on on bordering right we need to keep people out of our homes we need to keep people out of our nation uh the threat is out there and so we need to kind of double down it's much more difficult to recognize both that the threat comes from people closer to us and also that we ourselves are entangled in these structures of violence it's it's much easier to imagine that there are these kind of evil people traffickers and um, than to grapple with the fact that we all have the capacity to harm people maybe without even intending to and um, that to love other people is to be deeply vulnerable to each other to to both harm and be harmed and to kind of really sort of deal with those consequences and so I think a lot of this kind of investment in this idea of ourselves as saviors is an attempt to kind of evade grappling with uh, the ways that we ourselves harm and are harmed by other people and um, are vulnerable to the people around us. 
you brought to mind just a, an example. I have a friend who's quite wealthy actually. And he was telling me how he was driving through this um, impoverished neighborhood and he just lo- was looking around. He's driving in this like, you know, brand new, whatever Explorer or ex- Escalade or something like this. He's like, Oh, I just feel so bad. I just felt so bad. And I'm like, maybe you should examine that feeling a little bit more and what that's doing for you. Like, does that make you feel better? You know, does that make you believe you're a good person in the face of this uh, obvious, you know, economic disparity? Anyway, I think there are very real examples in our own lives that we can point to and um, to get a sense of how we're sort of implicit within these systems and how, as you say, Christianity is the name for for sin (laughs) in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'm I'm reminded here of um as a as a young person, you know, right, being taken to, you know, Christian music festivals or things along those lines, right? And there would always be these these booths that were all of these, you know, somewhat questionable charities that would be around adopt someone, quote unquote, you know, right? You know, send us money and we'll send you a picture once a month, these sorts of of things. And um what we've have seen in the years since, right? So this would have been like the late nineties for me. What we've seen since is, is the profound amount of violence that a lot of these kinds of organizations ultimately sort of wreaked in the communities in which they find themselves, the communities into which they intentionally inserted themselves. Yeah. And I think some of it as well is about the desire to feel powerful, right? Like I think a lot of us lead lives that are in I mean, maybe most of us lead lives that in, in lots of ways are out of our hands, that we we don't control things. You know, we we can't do the things we want to because of these kind of external constraints. Um, we're really limited in the options that are available to us. And rather than kind of really facing up to that, I think it it can be easy to like invest in this fantasy of ourselves as, you know, I give five pounds a month to this organization. They'll transform these people's lives um, rather than kind of grappling with this question of what power do we really have? in our immediate lives? Uh, what power do we not have in our immediate lives? How do we deal with that? Um, and how do we face up to it? So you just get to kind of feel like, you know, you sign your direct debit and therefore you're you're a kind of hero uh, making the world better. Or, yeah, yeah. Or, or you're not a hero, you're just abating guilt. Yeah. Which is, you know, fine. That everyone needs a little guilt abatement now and then. Um, shift in uh, direction a little bit. I know you have an interest in angels. Uh, Justin and I heard you recently on the Magnificast and... Um, I've seen you poking around online for different sources having to do with that subject. So what are you up to? What you, what's going on? What are you working on? My theory is I'm going to be writing something about angels and cyborgs. I haven't quite figured out how I had my head in this book for so long. So I'm sort of in a stage where I'm trying to figure out what, what to do next and how to go about it. So um, yeah, I think that the idea is uh, the next big project would be about angels and cyborgs and sort of tracking the entanglement of those two figures. I guess my sense is that angels and cyborgs essentially are the same thing. These kind of figures of the entanglement of human being with various kind of technologies, including kind of technologies of government. And so sort of trying to trace some of the different ways that angels are kind of indexed our attempts to think about uh, what it is to be human, how human beings relate to and make ourselves alongside technology, what it is to have a body and to relate to our bodies, what it is to govern the world and be kind of caught up into systems of government. Um, so that's, yeah. the, that's the idea. That's uh, that's hot. That's You're talking my language. <laughs> In fact, do you know uh, Ed Simon? We've had him on the show a, co- a couple of times. He's a um, Pittsburgh-based writer. Okay. He, he's writing or no i think he actually he's already written a large call, called elysium which is a sort of history of angels so i, I think it would be interesting to 
get the two of you together to to have a chat about about that sort of stuff would you be up for it yeah absolutely that sounds great all right well i'll set it up nice in, in the meantime, uh, you know, as always, we invite our listeners uh, to check out Theology for the End of the World, which I believe is now available everywhere. Is that correct? That is the hope, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time and digging into this text and, and some of your work. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. We'll talk again soon. Yeah, yeah. Good to talk to you. Thanks. Yep. All right. Bye. bye.